You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I'm Dan Gable, Technology Manager for the LRC. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language, LRC Director Dick Feldman speaks with Susan Gass, Distinguished Professor from the Michigan State University Department of Linguistics and Germanic, Slavic, Asian, and African languages. The two discuss pair work and how students learn from conversation rather than their partner's mistakes. And what the novice teachers did was all yes-no questions, so it was a spot the difference. Do you have a door in your picture? And this experienced teachers would say, I have a door in my picture, what do you have in yours? Susan Gass is a senior researcher in the field of second language acquisition who has published extensively on language pedagogy related topics. Among other areas, she has been especially central to the development of the importance of interaction in language learning. Today, I, I wanted to uh, take the part a little bit of a naive language learning student okay. who comes into class, and there's the teacher, and the first thing that happens, and something that happens a lot during the hour, is um, I'm asked to speak with another student instead of sitting there and listening to the teacher or watching stuff or doing uh, drills and raising my hand with everybody giving an answer, um, like uh, uh, you do in a lot of other kinds of classes. In the field, we call this group work or pair work. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of students um, don't really understand what the value of it is. I want to talk with the teacher, not with another student. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And teachers often don't understand what the value <laughs> of it is either. And let me just say something I hadn't thought about um, quite so much, but as a way of, of um, contextualizing this, I get it. I get why people don't want to speak. It can be uh -huh. embarrassing um, because you have to display what you know and what you don't know. And that, it, for many people, is very, very uncomfortable. And I think about my own experience. I lived in Italy for many years. Um, I lived there for about five or six years, and I still go back and I spend mm -hmm. summers there. And my Italian used to be very, very good. Um, good enough that I even translated a book from English to it, into Italian oh, uh -huh. on automobile racing. <laughs> so that's sort of to contextualize mm -hmm. where I used to be many years ago. So now I go back, as I said, every summer, and I it's embarrassing. I don't want to go into a store and say very much. I don't want to participate in conversations even though I know that, that there's value in that, it's just, uh -huh. it's a difficult thing to do because, as I said, you're, you're putting your knowledge on display and, or your lack of knowledge uh -huh. on display. So, some people say that uh, fear is the greatest problem in language learning. In, in some sense, that's right, yeah. um, that you have to be willing to make those mistakes. And I'll say a little bit more mm -hmm. about that because the... One of the things that happens in pair work or, or group work is, as you say, people, I don't, want to I don't want to talk with my fellow classmate. I'm just going to pick up all her mistakes. Well, actually, um, there's been research that looks at transcripts of classrooms. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You don't pick up mistakes. Um, what you do is you learn from your, your, your partner or, or others in your group. 
So you're talking and you're talking and you hear something that they say and you, you start thinking, hmm, I, really, is that right? And you might uh-huh. say it, but then that person corrects you or maybe not corrects you overtly, but repeats what she had said. And so that in and of itself becomes part of the learning process. Sometimes partners will sit and talk about the language. So, you know, you said this, is it a feminine noun or is it a masculine noun for, mm-hmm. for languages that yeah. have gender? And they may just talk about it and, and come to some sort of agreement. We've got lots of data that show where there's what we call negotiation, where you'll talk about this and one person will say this and another person will say that. And it's that noticing what we call is noticing a gap between what you're saying and what the other person is saying that helps learning. Um, It's the overt correction um, or repetition. So uh, not to become too technical about it, but there's what are called recasts. So if you say something and then I repeat it, but I repeat it correctly, that's called a recast. And that sort of... It's something we do in conversation sometimes anyway, right? Exactly. It happens all the time. Now, it's... It's good for language learning if the person is sensitive to that being a, a sort of correction. And sometimes it's not even intended as a correction. It's intended it's sort of as a clarification. But if you're sensitive to that, it gets you thinking. And I know, and it doesn't always mean that what you've said is wrong. It could be just another way of saying the same thing. And I think back to... Oh, about a year or so ago when I was in Italy and I wanted to get I was in a bakery and I wanted to get something and I must have said something like, is the pizza in arrivo, arriving? And the person said something different. And I was left thinking, did what I say, was what, was what I said wrong uh-huh, or was uh-huh. it just an alternative way of saying something? So about a year later, I was teaching a course in Italy, and I gave this an example, and the students all said, oh, yeah, what you said was fine. It was just an alternative way. So it can be confusing, Uh uh but it is an indication. It got me thinking about what what it was, and so it becomes a forum for, for learning. And as I said, the mistakes that usually when you've got something right, you know it. You know when you're right. Mm-hmm. When you're wrong, mm-hmm. there may be that little bit of question, is this right? I'm not sure about it. So that's, in a sense, why you don't pick up your mistakes from the others, because you know you're right. And so you're not likely to change your form. And as I say, I've got lots of examples where they negotiate their way to uh-huh. back and forth, back and forth. Because sometimes when you're saying something in a conversation with somebody mm-hmm. and they don't you can tell that you're not getting your point across. They aren't understanding you. Right. That can actually be very productive. Exactly. Because what you're given is some sort of signal, either from your partner in the class or from a teacher or from a native speaker if you're in a study abroad environment, um, that will give you an indication that what you're saying is is just not getting across, as you said. Now, what that means for you as a student or as a language learner is I got to figure out what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. could be my grammar. It could be that I'm using the wrong gender on a, on a noun. That usually won't interfere too much with communication. 
Um, is it that I'm using the wrong vocabulary right. item? Is it my pronunciation? So right. then that doesn't always, it doesn't give you the information. It's going to take more overt commentary, like that's wrong, this isn't the right word, or that's wrong, the pronunciation should be this. Um, but but, but I, it's, it's learning what you don't know. Exactly. Right? And it gives you, that's exactly what it does. That feedback gives you an indication that there is a problem, and then you have to to figure it out. And what's interesting in all of this is that the feedback that you're given um, is more beneficial in certain parts of language than others. So if mm. you give me some feedback, let's say a recast or something a little bit more direct, or just say, what, I didn't quite understand what mm -hmm. you said, it is much more beneficial when it's for vocabulary. It's more beneficial if it's for pronunciation. It's not so beneficial if it's for um, morphology, so word endings. The learners don't pick that up. They mm. interpret that kind of correction as something else, as correction of vocabulary. Or so I it see. depends on the on what it is that you're correcting. It also depends on your proficiency level. What you have to, if you're going to be able to make a correction, you have to have enough linguistic knowledge, language knowledge, to be able to correct it. So the proficiency uh -huh, level will right. play a part. And one example that I have was, from, this was a student teacher, not just so much student student, but where the student was obviously wavering between two forms. And uh -huh, then uh -huh. the native speaker, and I believe it was a teacher, came in and did a recast with the correct form. And then that set the student on his way to getting it right. Uh -huh. I've thought that that is kind of the critical moment for the art and uh, insight of the teacher. teacher. Exactly. To see that a student is on the borderline in something right. and to give just that little nudge that helps the student acquire the and, and cement down the uh, form. And that's experience. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's hard to think about how you would teach that in, in graduate programs. Uh -huh. There's a lot that just comes. I mean, I've done work um, on talk between teachers and, and students and the difference between novice teachers and more experienced teachers. Uh -huh. yeah. And it's the kinds of things, and, and what I did was a brief intervention. This was with a colleague of mine, and we did about a 20-minute intervention, and we were able to modify the way that the novice teachers talked with students. It didn't last <laughs> um, they started drifting back into uh -huh. their old ways when the conversation became difficult or all sorts of things intervened. But at least you know that you can begin to get people to, or teachers, to think about it. You know, what you're talking about, that aha moment yeah. that the, the student is about to get or has just gotten, when then you can go in and sort of nail it, finish it yeah. up. Yeah, That right. takes experience and confidence uh -huh. in being a teacher and uh -huh. teachers don't always have that it's hard confidence. to change the way a teacher teaches most people want to teach the way they were taught that's and another most students want to be taught, taught the way, way they've they, been taught. right but i think you know when you say that that's kind of interesting to think about because um 
I would imagine as time goes on and students are taught, begin to be taught differently, then they may have different expectations. I remember one of the positions that I have is, um, uh, you know, start where you started off in ESL. I direct an English language center. And when I first took over as director, we were doing, I'm trying to remember now, some curricular changes. <clears throat> and we were getting rid of just strict grammar teaching. And mm -hmm. boy, did we have to work with the students. Uh -huh. They didn't want uh -huh. it. The teachers were fine. It wasn't the teachers who had a problem. But the students, you know, where's my grammar class? I want you to tell me uh -huh. what to say and when and, you know, and how. And it just, we had to do a lot of student training in that. And, you know, when you think about it with understanding recasts or other corrections, you can think about it in the same way. Some teachers, actually, we go through learner training at our um, oh, uh -huh. center. Okay. And so some of this is just... Listen carefully to what I say. So if you say X and I say Y right after you, that may be, I don't want to interrupt the conversation of what you're saying, but think about it because that may be a subtle indication to you that what you when you said X, it wasn't quite right. Yeah, one of the subtle things about teaching as I see it is you want to teach form in a meaning context. Context, yeah. So it's not, it, those are sometimes in contrast with each other. So it's not so obvious how to do that. I will say that I am a big form person. I like mm -hmm. teaching form. I think there's a place for it. Um, I've sometimes felt in my ESL classes that it's a topic of conversation as interesting as anything else sometimes. Right. I mean, when if, did the person do this action? Yes. And what was the relationship of that action with another one? Really? Exactly. That's a exactly. conversation. That's a conversation. Another conversation is you hear everybody in the class doing something or struggling to say something. Stop the class. Do a regular grammar lesson for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. They may need that. They may uh -huh. need it's. I mean, you can think of it as efficiency. I know not everybody would agree with me, but I think of it as uh, as efficiency. Why are you going to? As everybody, I mean, I am also a believer of having students struggle through things to make it their own. But there's a mm -hmm, certain mm -hmm. point that you can just stop the class and say, "Look, all of you are struggling." with relative clauses, and you're putting, well, not to be too technical, a resumptive pronoun where we don't do it in English. Uh -huh. And all, most of the students will do that. So just stop the class, talk about it for a few minutes, give a little mini lesson, and then go on your merry way. Uh -huh. um, Work that mostly the students do out of class, reading they, their grammar book. They might do out of class, but they but just aren't getting it. it. Just The classroom is a place to facilitate what they're doing, to make it more efficient in 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 times, I mean, it mm -hmm. it there is a time and place. So I'm not against using the classroom, even flipped classrooms where you are doing a lot of that out of the class out of class. Sometimes they just don't get it. It's not enough, and and that again, that's the insight of the teacher to say this is a moment where people where it, I think can profit from from this. that exactly. Yeah, and and it's it's hard to, again hard to know in teacher training classes how to get teachers to understand what that moment is mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but and and maybe it's what 
sort of in-service training is, should be doing, where which we don't have that much at university levels as yeah. much as they do in, in the public school environment. Yeah, right. But, um, I mean, we do have professional development, but they usually don't target things like, like that. You know, how do you know when it's time to do to stop the class and do this. How do you know when it's uh, that a recast may not be working and you have to be a little bit more explicit? How do you know when students are about to get this, come to that aha moment? Yeah, um, those, those, those are issues. And that experience certainly is, is, is the is main the, thing yeah. there, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I know some of our programs pretty much tell the new TAs don't get into explaining grammar in class. Because they may not know how to do it, they may go on too long, uh, they may exactly not get right. through the yeah. rest of what they need right. to do. And they, because that's something that they think they can do, uh-huh. then they overdo it. Like you say, go on too long, yeah. um, just kill, uh, kill it. Um, they just they they just go way more than they should, and they don't know what that balance is. And for for some teachers, are more comfortable going on and on about a grammar explanation than they are. The more delicate management of the of the group and uh, scaffolding people right. as they have these conversations and stopping them and and sort of coming into the group and knowing what to say and when to say it, mm-hmm. and it really is much easier to just you know talk about the past tense or whatever, yeah. um, put yeah. an ed here, except <laughs> certain ones that don't have an ed. That's yeah. easy, uh-huh. and right. that's what um, novice. It was interesting when we did our novice and experience study to see what they did because what we we did in that study is we we a study of novice and experienced experienced teachers teachers, right Uh what we did is we paired a novice teacher this was esl with an esl student so that was it was pair it was they were doing um an activity a spot the difference task i think it was so we had a number of pairs novice teacher and student novice teacher and student we had others ones experienced teachers and students and what we were looking at is the way that the experienced teachers and um, novice teachers interacted with the student. Mm. So we taped that, and that was like a, maybe a 10, 12-minute interaction. Then we took that um, tape, and immediately afterwards, so there was no memory lapse, it wasn't two days later, we sat down, the in- interview, the researcher, actually was one of our graduate students, sat down with the teachers one-on-one, showed them the video, and asked them to comment on this. Why did you do this? Uh, Why did you uh say that? And some of it was with the interaction, with correction. Well, I didn't want to correct him because he would feel bad. That's what the novice teacher Uh said. uh Um, The experienced teachers would do things like, yes, that was a great teaching moment. That's why I I did that. Uh And we Uh never got that from the novice teachers. They were very concerned with themselves with how they were being perceived. They were just concerned with getting through this so-called lesson. Um, you know, they were concerned about the students' feelings. They were concerned about managing it. So one of it was we wanted to see how they started the conversation. And what the novice teachers did was all yes-no questions. So it was a spot the difference. Do you have a door in your picture? And this experienced teachers would say, I have a door in my picture. What do you have in yours? To get the students to talk uh-huh. so that then there could be an opportunity for feedback and may turn it into a learning process. And the novice teachers 
couldn't do that. It was just yes, no uh, questions. They they couldn't get beyond that. They uh. were worried about the students, how they would feel. They didn't want the student to talk. They thought, I should talk. I'm the native speaker. I should do all the talking. And it was really kind of interesting uh, to that, that, see yeah, it from their, case. Yeah. Their, their perspective. You know, we've been talking about... Um, things teachers need to do and uh, understand and uh, what uh, what experience helps them do better. Uh, sort of to finish up here, what are some of the things that you tell students in, when you do learner training? What do students need to do to be a good language learner? I think they need to, to pay attention. First of all, they have to be... Um, to be sensitive to what their their partners are doing. We don't have mm. so much problem nowadays um, with internet. I'm talking about international students mm. um, talking with their partners, but um, some of it is just telling them what the benefits of speaking are. Our classes, unfortunately, are very often all from one background, uh-huh, and uh-huh. so that becomes a problem. So it's 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 talking to them about what the benefits of of speaking are. It's talking to them about sort of noticing what differences there might be. It's talking to them about listening to their teachers and trying to understand what the teachers are saying that might be different. Uh huh. I guess in a fairly simplistic idea I've had for a long time comes from the idea that you had students who old-fashioned grammar classes yeah and the idea is you learn what you practice yeah so if what you've practiced is speaking about the grammar in your native language well you get to be able to good do well at that if you speak in class in the target language well then you're gonna learn to do that right and I think that times um, language teaching around the world is getting better. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. we don't have, I mean, the, this would, this is obviously a, a big generalization and, and, and it's only valid, I think, in some context, but you are getting away from just strict grammar classes. So I think that students are coming mm-hmm. in with a, a better variety of language uh, preparation, of language teaching. I was in Saudi Arabia last week and so impressed with the language teaching oh, that's going good. on there. I mean, I was at a university and it was, you know, obviously uni- a unique environment, but they are working on a major project now of um, language training to to work with high school teachers all over the every uh-huh. single high school teacher in the country. So uh-huh. I think that you know if you start looking at the seriousness with which language teaching and it's mostly English. Um, is being taken around the world, it is improving. And I think that we're going to start seeing, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, students who are very different than the ones that we've been uh-huh. well, dealing with. Well, that's so that's my optimistic, optimistic uh, note. <laughs> there, <laughs> no. yes. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Sam Lupwitz and Dan Gable. Recorded by Sam Lupwitz. Original music by Sam Lupwitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson.